0: Good morning. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Second Corinthians chapter 10. We are continuing uh, what we've been doing all year. We started out in January walking slowly through First and Second Corinthians. We're in chapter 10. Uh, this morning in Second Corinthians. While you're turning, I want to start with a story. Uh, Eighteen years ago, uh, I was a Bible college student in Florida. And I was part of the curriculum in this Bible college was that I needed to do an internship at a church. So I was studying preaching and and ministry, and you needed to go and do an internship where you would actually get some experience doing ministry. And so I wanted to do that near my home. And so I traveled uh, two and a half hours south of Orlando, where the Bible college was, went two and a half hours south, and applied to do an internship at this small Christian church right there in a town called Pompano Beach, Florida. And so I got the internship in my first day of work. Um, They put my office uh, in the same room. It was really great as the water heater, so it was really cool. Uh, (laughs) It's like a closet. It's like, welcome to internship. Uh, But it was a really great experience. And there was a secretary at this church named Maggie. Maggie was from Indiana, and she would uh, let me know it all the time uh, because she was an Indiana Pacers fan, and I was a Miami Heat fan growing up in South Florida. And these were our pre-LeBron days. And so we struggled a little bit, uh, and they had a guy that could hit a three every once in a while. So she would rub that in my face uh, when he would do that. And we had fun jabbing back and forth. Well, my internship ended, and I went to work in Orlando at a church plant uh, right after, and got married, and ultimately came up to uh, Illinois to go to seminary. And after being in seminary for a little bit, made my way over here to New Hope in 2008, and then joined the staff in 2009. And so right around that time, I'm coming into work here uh, at the church, and I walk into the lobby, and there's Maggie. And I think to myself, what are you doing here? And she said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I work here. But like, really, what are you doing here? Like, you were in Florida years ago when we were, you know, working every day together. Of all places, she finished work, retired, and moved to Zinesville Meadows and At the invitation of a neighbor, I came to check out this church, New Hope Christian Church, and she walks in, and we are reconnected. Uh, And that is a cool part of the story. Here's the better part. Maggie got involved at the church right away. And so not only did she have a huge impact on my life as a friend, uh, but she, through Kids Central, our children's ministry, began to teach. And she taught, uh, at the time, my now 13-year-old son, Caleb. Caleb. And then she faithfully continued to serve and taught my now 11, almost 12-year-old daughter, Abby. She taught my 9, almost 10-year-old son, Luke. And Lord willing, she'll teach my youngest son, Noah. Told her, you better, right? See, Maggie's faithfulness in serving had a generational impact on my family. A generational impact. We have a bond because of the ministry that we did together, but an even deeper bond because of the ministry that she did for my kids We have a lot of Maggies in this church. A lot of history of faithful people who have decided to come and invest in young people. You see, children's ministry is not babysitting. It's discipleship. And every single role in a children's ministry has a potential to have a profound impact on someone's life as they grow closer and closer to Jesus. Many of you know who your Maggie is, and you could think of who they are and tell me all about them. As our church has grown, uh, as you look around, You can tell. You can feel that, right? Well, the kids' ministry feels it more than any other ministry in our church right now. It is the fastest growing ministry at New Hope, and we praise God for that every single day. But we need more Maggie's. We need people who say, yeah, I can do that. People who are willing to step in and serve in an area that maybe you're unfamiliar with, understanding that we're not here to burn you out. You sign up to serve. It doesn't equate to a life sentence uh, here at New Hope. You can serve for a season or a specific purpose or for a longer season if that's what you feel called to do. So here's what I'm asking. Would you consider that? Would you consider taking the opportunity to become someone's Maggie, to invest and make generational impact on a family? You can learn more about it after the service. Jody, our children's minister, and Don, her husband will be out there near Kid Central. They'll tell you all about it. They'll tell you about different opportunities. And then here's what I'm asking you to do. Don't just sign up right away unless you already feel like, yeah, I'm supposed to go do it, and you're ready to go right now. That's fine, but maybe spend some time as a family praying intentionally around where God's calling you to serve. And then when you feel affirmed in that prayer, step up. And watch what God does as your service, your faithfulness makes an impact in the lives, especially of the young people here at our church. And so I want to start out this morning and just pray over it. Kid Central, pray a prayer of gratitude over all the people who for years have invested in young people at this church. Pray over those who are currently doing that and what God's going to do as we continue to get to reach families. Let's pray together. Father, you truly are the source of everything good in our lives. And what a blessing children are. And what a blessing those who have decided to step into a ministry that may have felt unfamiliar at first to be willing to teach and to invest in and to serve these children. God, I'm blown away at New Hope because when I got here, Father, just the testimony of, uh, of the children's ministry and VBS and seeing how some people are now at the church because of the vibrant children's ministry here at New Hope. And God, we don't want to lose that. And so many of us in the room are feeling you already poke at us, telling us that maybe that's us that needs to step up and step into an area to serve. So would you give us the courage to do that, the courage to ask good questions and seek information so that we're ready to make a decision to invest. Thank you for those who currently do that, who give so much of their time and energy and commitment to our young people. We are eternally grateful for the generational impact that they're making. And we ask you to bless all of this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. So we start out today and tell you about a young, in the country of Austria, about a young boy who soon after he was born as a young kid, his dad was tragically killed. And as a result of that, he began to really invest his time and his talent in developing a music skill. He became very talented at music, but not quite talented enough. So as he applied to be accepted into a prestigious school in Vienna, Austria, he was denied. And so now you have a guy that, a young man who had lost his dad one of the most important relationships in his life, and it now felt the sting of rejection. Many of you have felt that in your lives. We just, now you're battling this grief and this rejection. And it became uh, so much that it began to pull back from the meaningful friendships that he had. Didn't spend a whole lot of time with friends and family and kind of dove into certain types of music. Particularly, he dove into the, the music of a composer named Richard Wagner. And if you know anything about Wagner, you know that his music really uh, highlights, his life highlighted uh, violence against women and other people. And so this began to really shape and mold this young man. And he didn't just give into the music of this composer, but he also dove into the writings of a philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche. And if you know much about Nietzsche, Nietzsche made the claim that God is dead and that the only purpose in life is to pursue power. And then if you get that power, your power is now for you to enjoy your life by lording that power over people that are less fortunate and weaker than you. As this young man began to read the writings of Nietzsche and the compositions of Wagner, he began to be shaped. His brain was literally being shaped and molded. He ultimately became responsible for some of the most heinous acts our world has ever seen. We know this young boy from Austria to be Adolf Hitler. When you hear that, that old adage becomes pretty true, doesn't it? That what we expose ourselves to has the potential to shape and mold our minds and ultimately dictate our behavior. See, what I take in, whether it's the books that I'm reading, whether it's the shows that I'm watching, the music or podcasts that I'm listening to, the internet websites that I'm browsing consistently, that exposure begins to shape and mold my mind and can ultimately have a profound influence on my behavior and the life that I live, the person that I become. And this isn't just some youth group thing for parents to nudge their, are you listening to this? Listen to this. This is for all of us. Science has backed this up over and over again. This is why many of you, if I were to play a certain tune, I'm not going to do that this morning, that you hadn't listened to in 20 years, the song might come right back to you and the lyrics will be fresh in your mind like you listened to it yesterday. This is why many of us can recall the hurtful words of somebody Who, when we were younger, said the wrong thing at exactly the wrong time. And those words pierced like an arrow into our heart and shaped the way that we begin to think about ourselves. And you can remember the words. You can remember the smell of the environment that you were in when those words were spoken and began to shape you. And likewise, you can remember the good words, that teacher or that coach that said the exact right thing at the exact right time that became a pivotal turning point for you. Why? Because those words sunk deep into your brain and they began to shape and mold the way that you thought about life, the way that you thought about yourself. This is why we watch certain things, and we, it sticks with us. This is why anybody who shouldn't have watched it, but if you watch a Will Ferrell movie, you know, like you'll quote Anchorman for 20 years because you shouldn't have watched it to begin with, but you did. And guess what? The neural pathways were formed, and the movie lines come and come and come. My wife says that when I get with my friends, oftentimes it's like, you guys just quote, quote movies. Like, that's all you ever do. And I'm like, yeah, because our brain has been so impacted by it. This is how it works. Our minds are incredibly powerful. And they are incredibly impressionable. They have the potential to change the very course of our lives, all because of what we allow in, all because of the voices that we listen to, the messages that we hold in, the messages that we allow to shape us. See, Paul knew this. This is the battle he's having with the church in Corinth. Throughout First and Second Corinthians, we've noticed this, that this church continued to listen to the wrong voices There's this group of people here for this letter that we're studying now, 2 Corinthians, that had come into the church and began to teach what Paul calls a false gospel. And they began listening to it, and it began to shape things. We looked at generosity last week and how it began to shape and question whether or not they should follow through on a commitment that they had made. It began to cause them to question whether or not Paul had the authority to speak to them as an apostle. And what we mean by that is this, that the voices around them begin to say, well, is Paul's teaching really God's word? Like, should we really take it that seriously? And Paul gets a little bit fed up with it. And he has to defend his ministry over and over again. He gets a little bit frustrated because they won't stop listening to all these bad voices. And he knows that if they don't turn down the volume of the lies that they're taking in, it's going to be really hard to hear the truth. So he's calling them out on this. And he begins to build a case for why it's so important in your life that you Make sure that what you're allowing into your mind lines up with pulling you closer to Jesus and not pushing you further from him. Let's see how he does this. We're going to start in verse 1. He has this mentality, this idea, a quote that comes to my mind when I think about what he's about to write is this. The the German uh, reformer Martin Luther said this, and, and I want you to keep this in your mind. He said this, You can't keep a bird from flying over your head, but you sure can keep him from building a nest in your hair. Here's the thought. You can't stop yourself from having thoughts. You can't. You can't control when Satan throws a thought your way, but you sure can control how long you dwell on it. And you sure can control what you allow that thought to become inside your mind and how it shapes who you are. Let's see how Paul presents this case. Verse 1. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold towards you when away, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some who think that we live by the standards of this world." Now, right away, Paul's defending himself, okay? We're not quite to the mind part yet. But it's important to pause here. This is a theme in First and Second Corinthians. I have learned so much in the study and preparation for this sermon series. One of the things that I've noticed that Paul continually teaches us, and it's not always direct, sometimes it's indirect, but we've got to pay attention to it, particularly in the world that we live in, is that when Paul felt that he was right and the people he's writing to are wrong, look at the tone that he takes. We are surrounded by a culture right now, maybe more than any generation in history, that promotes that we use a certain type of tone when we disagree with somebody. It's a tone of anger, heightened emotions, and even hatred that leads sometimes to violence, if not just violence of the word, uh, with your words, that can lead to the destruction of someone's soul, then it's physical violence because we get so overly emotional because we're tied to the fact that we think we're right and somebody's wrong. And here's Paul being accused of things that he knows with certainty are not right. And here's a guy who has every right to blast this church because of the accusations that they've made about him that are unfounded and untrue. And yet he steps back and says, look, I know I can be bold in my writing. I know that I'm timid when I'm with you. But here's the whole point of it all. I beg you to take Jesus seriously. This isn't about me proving you wrong. This isn't about me having some sort of authority over you. I want you to see him with clarity more than anything else. I beg of you, take him seriously. Please take him seriously. And these are intense verses. Chapters 10 to 13, Paul gets pretty intense. In his kindness, he is not giving up any truth. And somehow we think in our world today that if I can display kindness to someone I disagree with, that somehow I've given an advantage to them. And Paul's showing us right now, no, that's not true. He's going to be stern. He's going to point some things out. He's going to make some accusations toward them that they really need to face, but he does it with this tone of, like, I just want Jesus to be glorified. Let me ask you this the last time you disagreed with somebody, the last time you felt that well up inside of you, like we all have, did you stop and pray? Did you look at that person that you had that deep disagreement with, that person that had wronged you, that person that you knew was wrong while you were right, and did you take the time to say, God, I just want them to see Jesus? I mean, I've prayed for them to see a lot of things, but have I prayed for them to see Jesus? Because that's what Paul does. Paul is absolutely defending his reputation, but his motive in doing so is to save this community of believers from a false teacher and a false gospel, not to elevate his reputation. He had a confidence in the truth. He knew the truth didn't need him to defend it. It's going to be true either way, but I want you through all of this to see Jesus. He continues, verse three. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. In other words, he continues his argument by saying that even though we live in a world that does not share our beliefs and a world that does not share uh, our values, We do not take the bait because when the world comes up against people, those that are in the culture in Corinth and in our world today, and they find somebody that doesn't agree with them, they come with lies and they come with deception and they come with injustice and they come with sometimes even hatred and violence. And Paul's saying, we don't fight that way. We have different weapons. We don't battle with lies. We don't attack the truth. We don't have injustice. We don't display hatred for the world with more hatred. For the church in Corinth, their big battle was deception. And they're trying to twist truth and make it say what it's not saying. And they're learning how to do that. And that's what they learned how to do in their culture. And now it's coming into the church. And Paul's saying enough is enough. He doesn't tell us what these strongholds are, but he does tell us how to fight them and how not to fight them. So you have a stronghold in your life, some sort of lie, some sort of thing that's not true, something that's weighing you down, some really big difficulty spiritually, emotionally, physically in your life. Paul is saying you don't fight that stronghold the way the world fights that stronghold. We fight with different weapons, and the primary weapon would be prayer. The thing we don't do is we don't get on social media and just blast out our opinions without thinking about it. We don't lie about other people, spread rumors. We don't allow our anger to control our tongues. Instead, we allow the Holy Spirit to produce fruit in our lives. So we display peace and patience and kindness and gentleness. And guess what? Self-control. In a world that's saying that's not how you fight back, Jesus is saying, yeah, it is. Because we're not fighting the same war. Paul's saying you want to break strongholds? There's only one way to do that. That's allow the Holy Spirit to direct the way that you're living. He gets a little bit more specific as he goes in verse 5. He says, "...we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ." And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. So once you get your act together, we can deal with this. But if all you're going to do is keep giving in to the lies that are around you, we can't even distinguish between what is right and wrong. You need to do these things. And he tells us, he starts out, we demolish arguments. A few years ago, I participated in what was called uh, the Colson Fellowship. The, the, the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, a guy named John Stone Street, was the president of this. And we've got some cool things coming at, at New Hope for 2022, uh, kind of getting to host some things here for that. And, and Ryan and I got to go through this, and it was a worldview uh, curriculum. It was really great. One of the taglines of John Stone Street that he says is, bad ideas have consequences. And as he explains it, he says, we go after bad ideas. We don't attack people, but we will come hard at a bad idea. Look where that may have come from. We demolish arguments that lead people away from Jesus, but we're not demolishing human beings. See, we're not fighting humans. We're fighting these horrible lies of deception, these bad ideas. And we're going to fight those things with prayer and with the truth and with the fruit of the Spirit. And they will be proved to be wrong, and those strongholds will be broken. And he says you do that by taking every thought captive in obedience to Jesus. We love the first part of that verse. I do. Take every thought captive. As a dad, I've probably told my kids that over and over again. I think it does a disservice when we don't quote the full thing. You take every thought captive in obedience to Jesus. So there's two things. There's your mind, and there's the authority over your mind. Let me illustrate it for you this way. We're going to start with neuroplasticity. That's exciting, isn't it? You've heard the phrase, it's like learning to ride a bike. So after a little bit of practice and a little bit of understanding, right, when you learn how to ride a bike, that's a skill that you never lose. You learn how to ride a bicycle and you can ride a bicycle forever. If I took some of you out that haven't ridden a bike in years, you'd be able to get on a bike. And your brain and your mind has been formed to that understanding in a way that you're not going to lose that skill, at least until the invention of the backwards brain bicycle, A couple years ago, I was reading about this. Some high-tech engineering welders challenged their friend, Destin Sandlin, who's a coworker and an actual rocket scientist, don't let that be lost on you, to ride a special bicycle that they had created. The bike was like any other bicycle with one difference. The handlebars were engineered that when you turn the bike to the right, the tire went to the left. And when you turn the bike to the left, the tire went to the right. And so they challenged their friend to learn how to ride this bike. And so he had to learn how to do it. And again, rocket scientist and engineering background, he could tell you everything about how they built it. He would have known all the gears, everything that was involved in it. He could have told you the algorithm that was required to learn how to ride this bike and the amount of pressure to put on the pedals. He could have understood it perfectly, except when he got up to ride that bike, he fell over and over and over again. You'll see this play behind me, just picture this. He was determined to conquer riding this bike, this incredibly uh, constructed bike. So after eight months, hear this, eight months, five minutes every day for eight months, he finally did it, right? He finally learned how to ride the bike. There's a really cool TED talk about this. You can watch it later, not now. And he said these words. He said, one day I couldn't ride the bike. And the next day that I could, and I don't really fully understand it except this. He said this, it was like I could feel, literally feel a pathway in my brain get unlocked, and all of a sudden, I was able to ride the bike. In fact, any brain scientist will confirm that truth. They'll tell you that's exactly what happened to him. His brain had literally been rewired in that moment, creating a brand new, what we call neuropathway. It's something that happens to you when we would say, you don't even think about it. You just do it, right? You just learn how to do it. That's the capacity of our brain. He had learned a new algorithm for bike riding. What's fascinating is his little six-year-old son who'd only been riding a bike for about two years also learned how to ride this in just two weeks, which tells us something. The neuroplasticity, which means the moldability of the brain in a young person is far more powerful than it is in a fully developed adult brain. But that doesn't get us off the hook, right? Because we also learned that he was able to ride this bike. He was able to learn how to do it. So the combination of the brain's capacity to be changed along with repeated action and effort, combined for a change of behavior. This is what Paul's getting at. Here's the point. Paul is saying you must actively, he writes this in the active tense, you can't be passive. You actively take every thought captive. Why? Because your brain can change. You can relearn things. You can unlearn things. And your brain has the potential and capacity to change the way you live, your actual behavior. Science backs this up through all of history. Look at the influences that we allow in. So Paul is saying you must be so intentional about what you expose yourself to. The music you listen to, the movies you watch, the books you read, the podcasts you listen to, the Internet sites that you're looking at, they have the ability to shape and mold you in ways that you underestimate daily. So now we get to authority. Because Paul doesn't just say, hey, there's some self-help stuff. Watch what you're watching and your brain will be fine. No, he says you must take every thought captive and submit it to obedience to Jesus. Well, What does he mean by that? Let me get us there by asking you this. Were you created or are you an accident? Because it's important that you really understand the answer to that question. I don't want to take it for granted. Now, many of us in the room would say we were created. We weren't an accident. But it's important to understand this. Do you, did something with intelligence and intentionality create you and instill in you a purpose for your life? Or were you just an accident of evolution and a chemical response to something? One author describes it this way. Think about it this way. When you see a lump of lead, molten lead that a factory is putting through a machine to form different parts and pieces of different things. Let's say in the process of that lead going through the machine, a piece falls off and it hits the ground. And because it's molten, it forms in the shape of a puddle and then it gets hard. There's a couple things about that piece. One, you would say that was an accident that wasn't intended to be. Therefore, this puddle shaped piece of lead has no purpose. Man, you could use it as a doorstop, but it really doesn't have a purpose. Right? And so you would say, that is absolutely an accident. There is no purpose. The other thing that would be inherently true about that little puddle piece of lead is this. It can't be broken because it had no purpose. Something can only be broken if it has a purpose. So if you took that piece of lead and you broke it over your knee, no one's going to say, oh, you broke it. Because it was never whole to begin with. It was broken in the beginning because it had no purpose. It had no intentionality to the way that it was created. So I'll ask again, were you created or are you an accident? Because if you are simply an accident, there's a couple things about you you need to know. If you were not in cr- created on purpose, for a purpose, and with a purpose, but instead you're just a response to some chemical reaction, then you have no purpose. You don't know what you're supposed to do with your life. There is no intentionality to what you do. The other part is this you can't be broken. You might say, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, you can't be broken because there was no intended purpose to begin with. You might say, well, I feel depression. I'm walking through a tragic thing. How can you define that as broken if there was no standard inherently given to you when you were created? And so if you were created, then it begs to offer, right? it begs to stand that the creator, the one who did create you, if somehow you could connect with that creator, the one who instilled the purpose of, in your life, if somehow we could connect with that creator, that creator would have what we would call ultimate moral authority over your life. Why? Because they're the source of your purpose. So everything you do would be filtered through them. So here's what Paul's saying. We'll bring it all together. When God created you, he did so on purpose. He gave you a purpose. He created you on purpose and for a purpose. And when he did that, he gave you a mind a mind that can be shaped and molded to affect behavior and life. And because he's the one that gave you that purpose, he's the one that gave you the talent that you have, the work ethic you have, and everything that goes with it that shapes and and forms your mind, because he's the one that gave you all of that, then he has ultimate moral authority over that mind, over the shaping of that life. Therefore, when you take every thought captive, there's only one source of moral authority you should filter it through. And this is what Paul is saying. So here's the question. Whose voices have you been listening to? Who have you even subconsciously given ultimate moral authority to shape your mind and your thoughts and your life? Right? Because it has a profound impact on us. I'll do a little case study of New Hope. No names. But I get the pastor here. My favorite thing about ministry is people and preaching. I love it. I love when people hurt. I've said this a hundred times. I love being on their speed dial when they do. So, a case study of our church, some of the voices that many of our people have been listening to, one of the top ones is shame. You feel shame. And so, you listen to the voice of the enemy tell you that you should be ashamed and that that shame defines who you are. It's become your identity. And so, you just feel it heavy in your life and you begin to live in a way that is shame. You begin to live out that shame because you've lost sight of who should have the ultimate moral authority in your life and whose voice should be dominant. And instead, you define everything about your life by the shame that you feel based on something you've done or something that was done to you. You know, another one near the top of the list in our church body is anger. We're so angry because we're so involved in politics and we're so involved in the cultural narrative around us that we get so fired up and our anger controls our tongue and our anger controls our thoughts and our anger even controls our actions. Because ultimately, that's the voice that we've given that moral authority to that is shaping our mind and our hearts. Many others, another one near the top of the loop is lust. It cannot be stated how dangerous this is. The internet websites that people expose themselves to, this is not simply a problem for just men. This is a problem for men and women. And the addiction that comes, the neural pathways that are formed when we expose ourselves to pornography... And we wonder why we then look at women differently and why we have a a, a life together as a married couple that's not flourishing sexually because we've exposed ourselves to the wrong voice over and over and over again. And it has begun to define how we see sex and pleasure in ways that do not honor the father. And therefore, we are not taking thoughts of sexuality and pleasure and marriage and filtering them under the moral authority of God's word. And instead, we're just listening to the voice so the culture can tell us what we deserve, what we're entitled to, and what we need. And those voices have formed neural pathways in our brain that have affected the way that we speak and live our lives. And Paul is saying, enough. You must take every thought captive in obedience to Jesus. But it's not all negative things. There are some positive things that we overexpose ourselves to that have a negative effect. Here's one for me, sports center. Sports center is a big one for me. I mean, you're like laughing at me, but like, it's a big deal. I love sports. I like Indiana fall because in the fall, football starts. And I picture sitting on a couch with the windows in my house open watching college football. And I just want to hear all about it. And I like to read about it. And I like to, and what happens is it begins to drive my motivations, my priorities, I've got three kids playing basketball on Saturdays in the fall. So you know what I don't do? I don't sit on my couch and watch basketball or college football the way that I would want to because when I overexpose myself, then I try to wiggle my way out of having to go to certain things so that I can sit and watch football. You see, even a positive thing can have a negative impact. I'm a podcast guy, not a music guy. So I listen to podcasts when I drive all the time. And those are great voices at times. But overexposure to great voices that's not the ultimate voice of God can have a bad impact on my life. It can control my emotions, my response to things. It can control my pride where now I've got an idea. So I walk in a room and a certain subject is brought up. Well, I quote the podcast as though it was my idea and not someone else's. Plagiarism, that can be a big problem too. Same thing happens. I like to read books. Voices and voices and voices. And I quote things and you can say things and it just feeds the ego. It's the wrong voice when you're overexposed to it. So here's the solution. First one is super simple. Almost feels elementary, but sometimes we need to return back to the basics. And I'm convinced we need this one. You need to read your Bible. I'm consistently blown away to the point where maybe I'm not so blown away anymore by the amount of people that I sit with and disciple and shepherd and pastor. And as I begin that, I ask them questions about their Bible reading habits, and they dismiss it as though it's not an important piece of the solution. Nobody goes to the front door, opens the door, and looks out and sees an F5 tornado coming toward their house and thinks, let me dig a basement now. Where's that crawl space again? What was the plan for tornadoes? Because here it comes. And yet we do that with God's word all the time. We open the front door and there's tragedy, difficulty, frustration, irritation, marriage problems, kid problems, money problems. Where's my Bible again? I think it said something about that. And the problem is many of us are reading our Bible looking for some emotional connection. Like every time I do my devotions, it's supposed to be Instagram worthy, cup of coffee, Bible open, God changing my life. Like and we're waiting for this emotional experience over and over and over again. And I'm here to tell you that sometimes it won't feel emotionally great, but you're investing in what you're going to need later. You expose yourself to the right voices. And then when those voices begin to slowly shape you and mold you, you become the person God needs you to be to do the things God's called you to do. And it begins with God's word. We must open this consistently, making it the most dominant voice that we're receiving, and the most dominant voice that we're allowing to shape us and mold us. Jesus himself made this promise to us. On the night before he died, here's what he said. All this I have spoken while I'm with you, meaning my words are the most important words, the most dominant voice that you should listen to in your life are my words. This is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the resurrected God, the Messiah, God himself saying my voice should be the most dominant voice in your life. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit is going to come who the Father will send in my name. And here's what he's going to do for you. He's going to teach you all the things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. So the question I've asked you before, I will ask you again. Are you giving the Holy Spirit a very deep well or a dried up well to pull from in moments of weakness and need? Are you storing up God's word in your heart? So when the Holy Spirit needs to remind you about what Jesus said, he's pulling from a deep well. Or is it dried up? Is it dried up? We must consume God's word, it must be the most dominant voice in our life having the greatest impact on developing neural pathways in this great brain that he's blessed us with so that it can continue to shape and mold who we're becoming so we can do what God has called us to do. But it all starts with his words and his voice over and above every other one. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity we've had to open your word and to hear from you and sometimes to be really challenged by it. God, we live in a world where it's really easy on Sunday morning. It feels really good in this room right now to say that your voice should be the most dominant voice. But the moment we get out of this place, the volume of the culture goes up. And so often in our lives, it drowns out your voice. And so would you give us the courage to put the right things in our path? And to get rid of certain things that are in our lives, even things that we think might be good, but they're just not having a good impact on who we're becoming. Would you help us, Father, through the church family, through the role of the Holy Spirit, and ultimately through your word, make decisions that would help us become who you've called us to be so we can do what you've called us to do. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Each week, we take communion together, and sometimes it's really good to hear from the Word of God and the communion to be this time of response to it. So, like, you could be checking out right now thinking about lunch, but we think, biblically speaking, the church gathers and takes communion every single week so that we can really realign our hearts with the heart of God. And so these next few moments, I want to give you two questions for you to think through in response to what we just studied together in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Maybe there are questions that will help you allow the Spirit in this moment of communion to wrestle a little bit with where you're at and what you need to do. The first question is this. Is there anything that you need to starve, meaning eliminate from your life, to help you take every thought captive to Jesus? Are there voices that you have given too much volume to that need to be quieted? Second question is this. Are there habits that you need to develop in your life help you renew your mind and take every thought captive to Christ. When Paul wrote to the church in Rome, he said, you should no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world, meaning that shouldn't be the dominant voice in your life, but you should be transformed by the renewing of your mind because of what Jesus has spoken to you. Use these next few moments to honestly evaluate whose voice is loudest in your life. Father, we give these moments to you, the only one who's worthy of being the loudest voice in our lives and in our hearts. We give it to you in Jesus' name and all God's people.